the stone or the earth for the pigment and the egg for the temple, etc. But you're raising them up to even to an even higher, more articulate state than before. So the good becomes very good. The words become poems. The notes become a symphony. Hello and welcome to Why are we talking about rabbits? Rabbits are those things on the internet that just keep on reproducing. Even though, even though no one quite understands what they mean, there's no depth. This podcast talks about heavy things. We do it lightly. Theology, philosophy, all kinds of things. Today, we look at what it means to create, what it means to make something manifest in the world through the eyes of an artist named Aiden Hart. Aiden Hart is one of the world's most celebrated iconographers. He was also a hermit in the Eastern Orthodox tradition and also filled with interesting insight. On today's show, we hear about making things incarnate with Aiden Hart. Okay, so I'm so happy to welcome you here, Aiden, Aiden Hart, an iconographer. And we're going to have you explain what that means to you in a second. But uh, would you just open up a little bit more about what you do and where you are and, and who you are? I gave a little introduction uh, just now in, uh, in our intro, but tell us more. How do you define who you are these days in terms of your work? Yes, I, I suppose I could call myself an iconographer, but I do much more than just paint panel icons. When people think of icons these days, they tend to think just of the, the boards, painted boards. But I do frescoes, murals, mosaic, stone and wood carving, some design of orthodox architecture. I was a sculptor before I became orthodox. I do a little bit of sculpture, but not a lot. So I, I like to sort of think that um, I can respond to the need for even refurbishing a whole church and uh, I just love the uh, interrelationship but between all the different parts of uh, visual liturgical art so you could say I'm a visual liturgical artist yeah. <laughs> encompassing yeah. most it's including lighting as well in fact I've just finished making a bronze chandelier for an orthodox monastery in America wow so this isn't this is not a question I was going to ask but I it popped up could you do that without having had a conversion experience? Do you think you, does it have to go together? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think there are two elements to being a good iconographer, not that I'm a good one, but a learning one, um, is skill. And of course, uh, uh, even an atheist could possess consummate skill. But the second aspect is to know the saints and know Christ whom you're depicting. Mm. Um, just in the secular world, you can always tell the difference between a painted portrait done from photographs and a painted portrait done from life. When you're actually painting the person who is sitting in front of you, the character impinges on you in a good way and you just naturally make decisions to leave things out, to emphasize some things so that you're painting the soul of a person as well as their outward visage. So for me, it's essential to to know the saints as personal people. So I'm painting a portrait of someone I know and love. And I emphasize this to my students that it's not just a, a skill set you're learning, but it's going to be a dangerous journey, I tell them, you're setting art on because you're going to encounter the living God. <laughs> wow. But this is fascinating. And if the living God resides in the soul of man and his creation, 
What does that say about our internet connections? That's very interesting because you're sort of here with me right now. There is a picture, a paint. Is it? Do you think it goes the same? Could could I paint the soul of a person th- through an internet experience? How does um, well, we've only been speaking about five or ten minutes, and I feel a real rapport with you. So yes, it's, it's possible because yeah. um, you pick up all sorts of things from uh, facial expression as well as mm-hmm. the word spoken, the intonation of the words. Um, obviously, the fullness of experience is is being together in the flesh, but I'm an optimist, and I think whatever means are available, acknowledge the weaknesses of them, but acknowledge what they can offer and use them to the best, but don't that, pretend that one can replace the other. That's um, interesting. COVID, I think some parishes have got quite an appetite for Zoom now, and they don't <laughs> want to go back to, 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 to proper meetings, and that's really sad. You know, that's really sad. Right. It's because of the fullness concept. I have a friend who's an iconographer. I think you I feel like you know him, Father um, um, Siloan Justiniano. Yeah, we never met again. It's been actually not even by the internet. It's been more by email other than Zoom. He's always talking about simulacrum, simulacrum. And I guess you're expressing something really true, which is there are variations on simulation, some being better than others. In that sense, maybe the internet simulation of, of of a conversation is better than a picture or a text. Do you see it that way as, yeah. as, as a type of, um, uh, as a continuum toward the full? Certainly, yeah. So there are some things you can put in writing that it's more cumbersome to say in word, but generally I would say what we're having now is sort of 80% toward meeting in, in the flesh, as it were. Right, so right. Um, writing takes a lot longer. It's more laborious, um, but, obviously some more complicated things are better said in a book so the, the person can put it down and pick it up at, at, at will. Right, um, right. So um, I, I think in the modern age, um, Christians need to be discerning. You know, know the limitations of what the modern age offers, um, but, but use them wisely. Um, we, we, right. we, we can't live in denial about these things. I mean, it'd be difficult for me to support my family without the internet because so many of my commissions come through my website. Right. Um, so I'm really grateful for it. There is a whole conversation here, right, about what reality is as we move into a digital age. It's, you know, there's the movie The Matrix, which a lot of folks who listen to this are very, very aware of. I think it does a good job of explaining in a popular way some some pretty scary realities. But... You don't feel it necessarily ebbing away because of the technology. Does the modern world give you other challenges that aren't maybe uh, in the technology? Are there other things happening as you try to paint and, and, and really and know your subjects? Are there other challenges going on with the modern world? Um, the first thing that comes to me, and this is more through my two children. I have a 16-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son. When I was growing up, um, boredom was actually an important part of my creative learning process. We didn't have um, the internet. We didn't have a television until I was about 14. Um, so my, my boredom actually compelled me to think of things to do. I played with my friends a lot and we invented all these incredible games. I was raised in New Zealand and we could play outside a lot because the weather was so good. Um, but, you know, I draw things from the age of five. I'd be drawing because I got bored. But nowadays with media, 
um, kids don't have an opportunity to get bored. They just fill it with yeah. surfing the internet. Mm. So for me, a danger um, with um, the easy access to things is that you fill it with noise, but you can actually avoid gaining deeper self-knowledge. Yeah. And when you get bored, you can begin to think, begin to uh, search your soul. And what do I do now? So, you know, well, I don't know what I should do. So then you begin to think, well, what, what, what really interests me? Is it art or sport or whatever? And then your self-knowledge grows for that. In fact, my daughter, who's a very good goalkeeper in football, she was baptized Orthodox as a baby, but she actually came back to the faith mm. through her football because she realized, especially as a goalkeeper, you needed a certain inner psychological state. So she started reading, listening to podcasts about um, you know, how, how to do well, what attitude to have to your challenges. And then she sort of rediscovered the faith. So that, that was through a, a passion about something that yeah. involved the whole being, you know, her, her mind as well as her body. Yeah. So, so um, I, th I think that's one of the big dangers um, of of modernity is that it it it, it makes us move so fast mm. and gives us no leisure that we lose self knowledge. Um, you and work it, a lot in the so called old world, and I think generally the religious state of people is much higher there. And I think part of that is because their lives aren't filled with technology; they have a slower pace, they're more aware of things, they're listening to creation, um, and 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 they hear God. Whereas we've got so much noise, we, we don't hear God. Do you think, well, by the way, in my experiences, it's a perfect description of there's a hearing or a listening going on in the old world, you know, the non-enlightened world, whatever that is. We've talked about it on the show a lot. Do you find you tapping into that, that, that quietness when you paint? Is that what's happening as you sit there? A, a type of patience? Yeah, I, I was a novice monk for 12 years in the last seven years I lived as a hermit. And for me, in a sense, to continue as a monk, uh, I became an, or continued to be an icon painter, but just concentrated on that. So that mm. for my eight hours in my studio, uh, I'm just silent with God, really. Um, sometimes I have music on, but generally I'm just uh, silent with that saint, the angel. I'm painting Archangel Gabriel now. He's six feet behind me. Um, and yeah, there, there's a conversation uh, that goes on in, in your soul. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, you're always aware of the saints and always aware of God, but, but that's the general trend of things. And I often tell my students that you've got to have the music of heaven in your soul, because when you're painting, one painting may require about a thousand decisions, you know, what direction that line should go, what color, how, how much water to put in, how translucent, how opaque. Consciously or unconsciously, you're making lots of decisions. Um, and if you have the music of God in your soul, what you produce is going to resonate with that. Whereas if I'm cacophonous inside, um, and as it were, my painting is singing out of tune, if I'm out of tune inside, I won't notice. But if, if I've got the heavenly music of my soul, I'll notice that something I'm painting is, is it's off key. Mm. Do you think that translates to probably everything, though, right? I guess on some level. Yeah. yeah. I think um, making icons is, is a microcosm of, of everything, really. I, I I just love ecology. I love God's creation. And, um, and I think the making of an icon is a microcosm of how we ought to relate to the material world. 
Um, so you're taking good things that God has given, the, the stone or the earth for the pigment and the egg for the temple, etc. But you're raising them up to even to an even higher, more articulate state than before. So the good becomes very good. The words become poems. The notes become a symphony. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's the same with, with whatever we do. Um, would would it, you it's expand a microcosm of larger principles? Would you expand on that idea real quickly in terms of the word incarnation? Because I think for a lot of people who listen to our podcast who are between two worlds. The idea of making that which is already real manifest or something like that mm -hmm. is really essential to the old narrative, the old Christian narrative, the Orthodox Christian narrative. Could you just talk about what that is to you, incarnate, making something meaty? <laughs> yeah. it, what is that to you? Um, both in East and Western Christendom, there are three classical stages in the spiritual life. Um, in the West, they tend to be called purification, um, illumination, and union. Purification is is um, redirecting all our God-given passions and energies toward God. And then gradually as we do that, and this is where the incarnation side comes out, um, we begin to perceive the words of God within each created thing so that when God created an oak tree, he didn't just create it and then walk away. That oak tree continues to exist because God's word, his living word, is, is keeping it in existence. So the fathers say before we come to the final state of union with God, as it were, beholding God face to face, we need to, as it were, see his shadows, uh, catch his whisper um, within the created world. So it's interesting that after Moses had met God on Sinai, he came down and his face was just too bright for people to look at. So we had to wear a veil. So for me, um, you know, God not only became incarnate in Christ 2,000 years ago, but when he created the material world, matter, stone, rocks, atoms, he was actually beginning his incarnation there. And one of the main um, sins of man, particularly modern man, is not to see the world as a gift, not to see the world as an incarnation of God's love and is treated as matter. And, and that's what death is. And so instead of seeing a gift wrapped up um, with a card on it saying, um, from God with love, I just rip the paper off and take the object. And to me, it's dead matter if I don't re realize that it's a gift. So it's one of the, I think, one of the great roles of an iconographer to manifest God's presence in creation. So when I paint a tree, I just don't paint it as I would see it through a camera or through my physical eyes only, but I try to paint it as I'm seeing it with my spiritual eyes as well as my physical eyes. So when Moses saw the bush burning, in fact, the bush hadn't caught a light. The bush had always been burning, but Moses' eyes had been opened to see it as it always was, alive with God's presence. So the Painted, the transfiguration is really important in the Orthodox Church because there Christ's body and Christ's garments shine with light. And this light um, is God's glory. It's, it's not just a creative light, it's God himself. And the wonderful thing to my mind is that this light shone not only through Christ's face, but through the garments. And these were just linen, they're just ordinary inanimate matter, but they partook of this Shekinah glory, this uh, Shekinah, the Hebrew word for glory. Right. So I think what I'm trying to do as an iconographer, and what all iconographers are trying to do, is to is to depict the whole creation shining with that light. Man, 
the implications are incredible because if what you're saying is true, which, you know, it's not a proposition. You kind of either kind of come to see it or, or you come to see it in some, in some form and then grope toward a fullest form. But if it's true, then, then the way we actually treat everything in creation is going to change. It's almost like you abolish the ecosystem problem or the, 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 the problem of all the problems associated with destroying the earth once you put on this new garment or this new way of seeing. Mm-hmm. But why does it why is it so hard for us to see these things in in creation? I wonder. I think that the fundamental principle behind the account in Genesis of the fall is not to live a life of thanksgiving. I think it was Ephraim the Syrian or Isaac said that perhaps the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the whole created world. Mm. So if we receive it with thanksgiving, in other words, see it as a gift of God, as a revelation of God, it becomes knowledge of good. If we just grab it, turn our backs on the giver and just sort of reset and do whatever we want to do with it, then we're dead already. We we have knowledge of evil. So it wasn't that God put a test in front of them so much. God just gave us the world, gave us freedom. But for some perverse reason, well, ultimately it was the devil, distorting. What's interesting is that the the serpent, the devil, had to malign God first to Eve. He said, does God want to be like you? (laughs) Uh, uh, But he's afraid that if you eat of it, you'll become like him, as though God didn't want her to become like him. But in fact, that's precisely why I made them. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually flipped fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. So, So basically, I think people don't believe in God because... They can't believe such a thing that's so incredible, you know, that God actually created us to not just be like him, to sort of follow behind him, but to be full of him, for him actually to enter our being and be united to us like a husband and wife, to be closer um, to him than we are to ourselves. I mean, that's just too wonderful to believe. <laughs> so we don't too, believe it sometimes. It's, it's so, so sometimes it's the most awesome, wonderful things that we realize, wow, this is just, I can't understand this. I'm not going to go there. So sometimes we, we don't enter the beautiful just because it's so beyond us. Yeah. Um, but we created to be beyond just merely human. But it's the fear of the unknown, perhaps. But ultimately, it's, it's the devil telling a lie, which we believe. That uh, you know, there can't be any other reason. It's a, it, right. It's an invitation into, into the darkness, the darkness being the lie. And it's not as if someone who's telling that lie. I have so many friends who aren't believers. It's not as if they're filled with some sort of devilish, blood-curdling demon. What's happening is, is there's a lie being told, and the degree to which you follow it leads you further and further into a, a, a false reality, a false narrative. And it's hard to get out of that false narrative it, 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 once you've gone too far in. Well, we were talking off camera about Philip Sherrard's book, Rape of Man and Nature. He's sort of, this is sort of what that's all about. You painted... Uh, for him, I guess, right? You, yeah. Yes, when he was alive, um, he and his wife built this wonderful chapel. They live in this amazing valley in in Evia in Greece, and uh, I think there was electricity in his house when he bought it, but he just ripped it all out. You know, he so he lived. Well, he didn't want the electricity. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so they made this wonderful stone church, and uh, he died, and then his wife, I think, inherited some money from, I think, her parents when they died. 
and so she contacted me and said could you rescue us and so um basically it was um a testimony to the teachings of Philip, which are just basic orthodox teachings, but we wanted particularly to emphasize uh, the right relationship of humans and creation. So uh, there were standing saints, and between each standing saint was a tree, but a lot of the saints were associated with animals. So Mary of Egypt, um, she died in the desert, and uh, by tradition, a, a lion dug her grave. So there was a line there underneath her, and then uh, St. Malungath, a Welsh saint associated with hares, where to hear that. Um, yeah. But I think, I know you work a lot, of course, with, with people in so-called old world countries, and um, we were talking about perceiving the logoi, the words of God in trees and nature, but the ultimate thing is to meet everyone as a living image of God. And I've had that blessing of knowing a few saints, uh, Father Paisius, I met a number of times. And what I noticed going away filled with great joy having been with them was not so much his words, but they're always very funny and, and full of insight. But you realized actually he was talking to a part of me I hadn't really known before. He was, um, we were talking about uh, this earlier, that He's thirsty for God. That's all that mattered to him, Christ. So when he met anyone, even a moldy-old sinner like me, he was just interested in that 1% that was of God. And, and so he would address that and draw it out. And I think um, we were saying earlier, I, I think every missionary should be a listener and a seeker, a seer before they're a speaker. Um, so they should be looking for God in that culture. Um, St. Nicholas of Japan spent seven years studying the Japanese culture, not in a patronizing way, so oh, I'm going to convert them now, but I think he just loved that Japanese culture, he came to respect it. So when he began speaking the gospel, they responded, yeah. because here, this wasn't a Russian, he was going to make them all Russians. Here, it's a man understood their culture yeah. and, and you know, wanted to bring it to fruition. And of course, St. Paul and the Areopagus quoted from their own philosophers, you know, um, he wasn't saying what I'm preaching is exactly the same as what you believe, but there are overlaps. And the God that you were thirsting for, he has become flesh. He's felt among us. So he built on what they already knew. Well, if God is, yeah, you know, some of these equations are so simple in the modern world, we overlook them. If God is before me in the, my friend, Adima in Sierra Leone, if that's actually God, I, I know she's a Muslim and she just got back from mosque, but it's still her godness, the Logoi didn't leave her. I'm still responsible to stand before her with patience and love and listen because it's already in there. The thing that's so beautiful is already there. Uh, to do it otherwise is very confusing, right? <laughs> to imagine that the exterior is what I must change rather than simply relate with the interior. It, it, I think it creates a colonial world. You, and by here, colonial just means, you know, command and control. Uh, and command and control gets so confusing because it implies I know. <laughs> and as soon as you do that, uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> it's a little you know, the, the church fathers distinguish between image and likeness. I mean, in the original Hebrew, they often said the same thing twice. So I don't think it was intended in the... Um, the chapter in Genesis where it says, God says, let us make man in our image and likeness. But the fathers of later said that what everyone, regardless of their faith or moral state, is actually, whether or not they like it, in the image of God, um, our freedom um, that allows us to sin as well as to, to do right, is, is 
is an imageness of God um, and so on. Um, but the saints um, are those who are much like God. So I can use my imageness for better or for worse. Um, so in, in uh, Slavonic, the word for saint, prepodogly, means much like. So I think everyone we meet, we must treat as an image of God, regardless of their, their beliefs. Um, and I think that feeds our soul. So we come to another culture to learn to, to, to if we're thirsty for humble people, you know, we come to them above all to meet God in that. And they will notice that. They'll notice that respect. And they'll respond to that. I think if there are tons of Christians in the world, it's because Christians haven't loved. It's our fault. Yeah. You know, we haven't treated people as walking gods. We haven't treated them as as, as awesome beings. You know, I think well, it, it couldn't be any other way. Because if you, you can't bring Christ, Christ can't be present in the world. And then we imagine that drives people away. That doesn't make any sense because it's Christ, it's the truth, and it's the beauty, it's the light. So people should run toward that. The problem is, is those who speak on his behalf, so to speak, the church, we have to draw people in because we are light. And where we aren't, we drive people away. That how, how else, how, It couldn't be any other way, right, Aiden? It, it, it has to be in us that the fault is. The problem is, though is there is beauty and there is truth, right? And so as an iconographer, is that is almost everything you do kind of missionary in nature, kind of linking the old world and new world and putting people back together? Is that? Oh, yes, I think um, the two elements to the icon, one is you're depicting God himself. God became flesh in Christ, but also one is depicting his children, the saints. Um, so when one goes into a church, particularly one that's frescoed all around, um, you're really aware that, we here on earth, there might be 20 in the parish, 100, 1,000. We're not actually beginning a church service. We're joining in the ceaseless worship in heaven. So even if it's even when I was a hermit, I wasn't praying alone. I was joining in a few million brethren who went before me who are alive now in Christ mm -hmm. in heaven. So icons are a very important way of affirming um, the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the one church. There aren't two churches, one on earth and one in heaven, there's, there's literally one. So icons are very important. Um, we're talking about the image of God and people that um, more and more as a person who paints saints as an iconographer, I find this transforms the way I meet people. You know, I, I'll be painting a saint all day, eight hours a day, then I go outside and I meet someone. So I, I begin to see them in a different way. I'm looking for, wow. for Christ in them. And I noticed this when I was painting Philip Sherrard's chapel, I would I had branches inside to sort of paint an iconographic version of this tree. That might be eight hours. And then I'd go outside and I'd see that same tree outside and I'd see it in a different way. And I'd been painting it as a burning bush inside that transformed the way that I saw it when I was outside. What does it do to you? Does it, what type of person is that making you? Are, do you slow down? Do you become less productive? The modern world loves production and consuming do you become less of a consumer and less of a producer in that sense because that experience is happening to you? Um, I'm certainly less a consumer, um, but more of a producer. I just feel, I wouldn't say driven, but uh, I just, my main work I feel is is to try to produce beauty. I um, the right sort of beauty, but there are different types of beauty. We can talk about that later. And I need to support my family, so I can't sort of just sit there in blissful meditation right, right. <laughs> to sell the house. And <laughs> so, um, but 
yeah, I, I suppose I feel driven that, you know, God has given me life and, and my main work, I feel, apart from my writing and giving the odd talk, is to create seeds of, of beauty. I feel like I'm a tree with all these seeds and I want to, 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 to chuck them out so see, see if some of them will grow. So it does encourage a type of, I don't like the word production, but an energy that moves you toward creation, yeah. Tell us about, if you would, you don't have to, but about being a hermit. Can I just ask you, where were you hermiting? Yeah, about 16 miles from here up on the hills, about 101 And where are you right now? Um, in a lovely um, medieval town called Shrewsbury in Shropshire, which is sort of Midwest England. Okay. Um, a mile, uh, an hour's drive away, you got Birmingham, the second second largest city mm-hmm. after London. But then in the other direction, um, west, you've got Wales, um, sort of in between two worlds. And you were a hermit out there. That's right. Yes, I I, um, I I started monastic life as an Orthodox in 1986. Lived for for three and a half years with an, an old Welsh monk in Wales, and then. Um, I was sent by my archbishop to Mount Athos for about two, about a year and a half, two years to get experience um, in a more established monastery. I went to Veron Monastery with blessed Father Vasilius. I love him to bits. Um, <laughs> and the Altar of Entry. And that was a great privilege. We could talk about him later. Um, and then uh, went up to uh, live in this 20 acres of land up on the hills and had to restore the building there first and create a um, a chapel. So it was like a, a microcosm because I, I, I always loved ecology. I loved creation. And I came to believe in God through trees, really, when I was a child. We used to play in trees a lot. So I came to believe in the existence of God through trees. So I felt I had to repay my debt to trees. So I planted about 5,000 native trees. And You did? And, wow. Yeah. But um, my warning to people is, if you want a quiet life, don't be a hermit. <laughs> That's exhausting. So many people came to visit. And, of course, I had about four hours of services a day to do. And I supported myself from my icon work and had to restore the buildings and look after the land. So cook for the people who visited. It's, it's, it's too exhausting to be a hermit. <laughs> I, hear this, I hear this story with the Greek monasteries here in America that were founded by Elder Ephraim is what happens is, is people searching out the peace, go to the monastery and then the monks and the nuns who have already gone before them start to serve them. And so there's this cacophony that they didn't plan on, but I guess that's okay, right? Is that a sign of, uh, that's good on some level? Yeah, again, you're. I think a monk is one who, as it were, lives alone with God. That doesn't necessarily mean live alone materially, but they do everything in God. Right. So if they're with people by themselves in a mountain, in a valley, and water, it doesn't matter. They're always in Christ. You know, the word monokos means one who is alone. So um, I think a monk needs to be obedient to what God's providence has given them. Yeah. Lots of people come, you've got to obey them. Historically, one of the things we see old world, new world, is... The traditions of the old world are always ascetic. There's the Hindus have asceticism. You you pick a culture, even Native American culture, they had their ascetics that would go out into the woods, into the forest. The new world, you see an abandonment of that concept. Now, there, there's a type of scholarly asceticism, I guess, but you don't see it being so intentional. Do you think there's something to that reading of history? Do you think there is a break with the modern world in terms of the ascetic practices? 
yeah, I think it goes back to this idea of what the essence of the fall is, which is instead of seeing creation as a revelation, we see it as a big food basket of pleasure. So we just want to eat experiences. And, and that's really seems to be the main feature of modern man. We're consuming society, which means not just consuming objects, but we've got it the wrong way around. The, 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 the material world, the world is there primarily uh, is a, a means of um, meditation, as, as it were, for us to perceive God. And that actually makes you more content. So actually, you don't need to fill this vacuum with, you know, fast cars or big flash houses or changing your clothes every day sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I see this loss of asceticism as, as really the result of um, the loss of the noose. This is when we can talk about this a bit. And Philip Sherard Please do. Please do. That, that I think um, this heresy, which is a wrong teaching about God, but there's also heresy about a wrong understanding of human anatomy, if you like. So modern man has just treated as basically as a body and the brain is just a complex part of the body, but basically body and brain and with emotions. That's basically the paradigm of the modern man. But in reality, we always have a noose. The, the, the noose is um, the Greek word, which is perhaps best described as the eye of the heart. So we have a spiritual heart and the, the noose is like the eye of the heart. So. Um, if we don't believe we're a spiritual being with with noetic faculties, with this noose, um, we can't we can't see the fire in the bush, as it were. Mm. Um, but we're created to be filled with God through the noose, through the spirit. So if we're not filled with God, we're, we're still hungry. So we look around for things to fill it with. Um, asceticism is very simply just. Um, redirecting our god-given energies in such a way that our eye becomes clear that we can perceive god that we can love god but you know if you don't believe in god if you don't believe the world is burning with his glory then what's the use of asceticism right right <laughs> well, it just means training really it's just re getting fit again so you can you know you can do it that's what i wanted to say it comes from the Greek to be an athlete. And so That's right. the, the ascetic practice is, is a type of training to open the eye or if, or clean it, clean the eye, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the eye becomes aware. And so I, I had a friend once, Episcopal, Episcopalian. She was a nice lady. I taught with her. She was so irritated that people went up on mountains and were monks because they weren't doing anything. And I used to think, well, what's your definition of doing? Because I've always seen it as a training the way you described it. And so you you participate in this and, and have. I mean, I think most people in, in the Orthodox tradition are participating, or at least they should be. Is your eye opening? But see, now you if you say, yeah, it's open and I'm seeing everything, that would be evidence that it's not, right? How do you answer that question? Have you felt transformation? Are you... Is the noose opening? Can we talk about that? Is it possible? I think two things happen. When your eye begins to open, you see more of God, but then at the same time, you realize even more how far away you are from oh, there. Yeah. You see? So, I mean, I find this just with my iconography. After painting about two years, I thought I was doing quite well. But after five years, I, I knew I'd got better, but the ceiling got higher and higher. Right. So in fact, the distance between what I knew um, was possible and what I was was bigger. 
So in fact, the OR is getting better, I think. Um, sometimes a sense of desperation of how far short I am and what, you know, a really good eye for longer brewers increases. And I just, oh, I should just give up. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Now when I'm faced with a blank canvas, a, a blank icon rather board, <laughs> oh, I'm scared stiff. <laughs> <laughs> when in reality, now I'll speak on your, in reality, you look at your, they're, they're incredible. Now you can't, you can't, speak of it that way as the creator of them. You see, that's what's so fascinating. And I think that's the paradox, right? From the East, from the Christian East, there's some, com we're comfort, comfortable in the paradox. I just know so many of my friends in the West who aren't in the Orthodox tradition, they're uncomfortable with the paradox. Um, do you have to embrace that in your painting? It feels like you would have to embrace that yes yeah, so i think there's so many ways in which an icon well it says and unsays in other words it is like but it isn't like so some people comment when they see icons for the first time how flat they are relatively flat right. they're not right. like renaissance painters so one of the reasons for that there are many reasons but one is that the icon is only an image it doesn't pretend to replace the saint the whole idea of an icon is to be a door through which you pass to meet the actual saint meet christ meet the angel so all the time the icon is saying, I am like St. Pisces, but I'm not Father Pisces. You know, I'm unlike him as well. So yeah. we have a built-in weakness, as it were. Right. It, there's no canon against three-dimensional statues, but they tend not to work as well because they're too much like um, the three-dimensional saint. Um, it's, it, it's almost like uh, there's a type of... Th the word that came to mind just now is theft. It's almost... Like you're not allowing me the journey, you're giving me too much of the reality, but it's not the reality anyway. In that sense, it's fake, right? That's a good way to put it. Then a second way I think the icon uses paradoxes, um, that sure the virtues are a combination not of opposites, but of two poles. So on the one hand, the 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 eye or the brows might have a slight sadness, whereas there's a, a gentle smile, not a big cheesy smile, but a, a gentle smile, perhaps, mm. um, a warmth from the lips. So that on the one hand, the saint co-suffers with us, even though they're in the glory of heaven. You know, they're... I see. They co-suffer with us. So there's that compassion, but they're full of joy. They're not drowning in our sorrow. They're with us, but they're not drowning in it. So there's the joy. So you have the joy and the suffering, the joy wow. and the sorrow combined. And that happens with, with a lot of different things. Um, um, there's no agitation in the gestures of the saint. Um, there's a stillness, but there's movement as well. Mm. So you, they really would have a face directly looking at you, but you wouldn't have one looking away. So having it slightly turned, there's movement, but on the other hand, there's stillness. I see. Um, you don't I have see. a static saint to stand on like a, a stick. On the other hand, you don't have flaring arms and then running. Right. So there's, um, like St. Paul said, I labor more than all the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So it's as though he's going really fast, but he's actually sitting. Uh, God is carrying him. So we have oh. the movement and stasis, movement and stillness. I, that, I think I, for the first time, understand, because I've never felt that icons are still um, static. But I, the, you're right, though. There isn't that sharpness. You don't see a running saint. That's a really good point. It's so interesting. And so there's some sort of middle ground there. There's some sort of royal path that's being tread. Wow. 
So interesting. Tell us about what you did for Orthodox Arts Festival. I think you you participated. You submitted. This is for the uh, festival in in London, right? In England, did you provided an exhibit? Yes, um, Ioannis, the founder of it, um, asked if I could be one of the judges, and I submitted a few works. Um, so I think ideally, Ioannis would have liked to have had a, a real exhibition of works, but with COVID, it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. So with the wonders of modern technology and 3D simulation, mm-hmm. he's um, uh, has an exhibition which opens in a few days, I believe. So you can walk through the galleries. So there are icons and not just painted icons, but other forms of iconography, mm-hmm. both old and new. So, um, yeah, it's a very venture. And um, also he perceives that um, iconography or liturgical art, let's call it in the broader sense, isn't the only form of art. Um, I, I know myself, a man, Paul Martin, a very good, um, exceptionally good painter, orthodox. Um, he does do some icons, but his main work is the, the amazing paintings he does, some figurative, mm-hmm. some more abstract. Um, so I think Ioannis has got a gallery for for people like that and novelists as well. I think you submitted something. I did. I did. Yeah, exactly. I did. So, um, well, and that's we'll what you, that interests me. Well, I call it threshold art, so that you're not doing liturgical art, um, but you're doing work that, is inspired by life in Christ, but you're sort of writing, as it were, in the world. Um, so I think there's a real role for the great um, sculptor Brancusi, Constantine Brancusi from Romania was a big influence in leading me to orthodoxy because of well, the purity I, of his forms. I, I, I believe that. Uh, I mean, my favorite writer, Dostoevsky, proves that. I mean, so many people have come through him as a, you know, pretty flawed person living in the world. But uh, the folks that are participating in this festival, this is high caliber stuff. And so it's it's a blessing to have you on here. Is there an art that's not iconography that you were drawn to during your period deciding about your life as an artist? Is there another type of art? Well, I I did my degree in English uh, literature and mathematics and then trained as a teacher. Um, but I just didn't like teaching. Mm. So I left pretty quickly and then worked as a sculptor. So in fact, I was a full-time sculptor before I became orthodox. And um, for Prince Charles, I'm quite close to Prince Charles. He, he's got a very <coughs> sort of orthodox world view. So yes, I've heard of, that. I've heard yeah, that. Okay. Yeah. Um, wow. Lots of, lots of insight. Often he will start something which people lampoon him for. Like he was into ecology way before it became mainstream. And mm articles would be written about you know, the prince who talks to trees and things. But so often he starts something before it's mainstream and then it becomes mainstream because he perceives quite early on um, a, a problem uh, or the root of a problem. People have seen the problem and not the root of it. Um, but anyway, he, so he's commissioned a few portraits. So I do do some sculpting still. But in fact, it was through my sculpting that I encountered orthodoxy. Um, I'd been trying, as a devout Anglican, I'd been trying to depict something of the spiritual nature of man in, in, in my works and looking for influences. And in fact, African works, one of the things I looked to. Fine. Um, Great. Um, Will you speak to that for us? Because uh, I know, I mean, I was just there, actually, in fact, just two weeks ago. T- tell me about what you think of African art. W- what's happening there? Well, I think, first of all, as you would know much more than I, that Africa is, though it's a continent, it's like many, many different tribes and different tribes have different um, different traditions, not just different languages, but different art. But um, I can just talk about two um, groups. Um, 
the uh, Bin and Ashanti tribes, they're, they're both do amazing uh, bronze work. Um, but in general, um, I found that most of the traditional African art is profoundly religious in its intent, like the masks, which had such a big influence from early modernists, Picasso and that. But all of them, I think, as I understand it, I'm not an expert, um, had a religious function, you know, that they were there for, for, for religious dances. Um, and so that's what led me to uh, try to understand what technical aesthetic means they used to indicate something of the spiritual. And I noticed that they tended to elongate and simplify, whereas, say, the Renaissance, um, which is more of a secular um, period, they got fascinated by all the visible stuff. But I noticed cultures where there's a strong religious faith and they're consciously trying to portray something of the invisible. They're always abstracted and often elongated. So in my first phase of sculpting, I thought, well, I had to understand the material first. So I, I, I was influenced by Michelangelo, Auguste Rodin. So just trying to understand the body, I had to start with the physical, like St. Paul said, the physical first and then the spiritual. But the second phase, I thought, right, I've understood quite a lot about the human body. Now I've got to look for the spiritual. So I looked at the African work and noticed how powerful it was spiritually. I thought this was a, the air was thin there. In other words, the, 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 the other, even, even if they were pagans, you know, that you really felt that the spiritual world was whatever it was, it might be demonic, whatever, you know, that they were close to that, that world. Um, then I tried to bring the two together, you know, the, the more abstract, um, the, the violently spiritually, for like, with the more incarnate. And then I started to, combine degrees of abstraction with degrees of naturalism and came to some conclusions about something that was gentle but but awesome and that's when i discovered the icon and i realized then fact, the icon had been doing what i i've been doing it for two thousand years um anyway that's getting away from the african work but it's to say that encountering a so-called primitive people i realized actually how crude say the renaissance was compared to a lot of these african works because wow. They were closer to the invisible than these highly refined um, Renaissance works. So this is an experience that I have and have had living at length in African communities and so do our field workers, which is when I hear crude and primitive, I, I don't understand. It doesn't land well. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a liminal the, the, our friend, my friends in West Africa are they're in this liminal space. They're always right on the verge of something very spiritual, which if that world does exist, it's 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 complicated beyond even our understanding. And to live constantly in the manifest world, the, the material world, it is a type of crudeness, mm -hmm. like you implied, which is so interesting that you said that about, that's one of the things we talk about on the podcast. That's fascinating. In some ways, the Renaissance moves toward the crude rather than toward the refined. Yeah. Wow. I've just finished writing quite a, a long book on festal icons, the festal icons, history and meaning, I think it's going to be called. And um, it's in part a response to people saying, oh, the icon is so simplistic compared to, I don't know, Renaissance painting. But I'd explain that, in fact, the flatness, for example, we spoke of earlier, allows you to convey all sorts of profound theological truths that you couldn't if I was interested in portraying all the physical depth. So by having something more on the same plane, you can use geometry a lot more. So for example, um, say the nativity icon, sometimes prices of um, 
uh, a square and the, the created realm, the, the material created realm is contained within the square. So you've got your magi, the shepherds, the sheep, the mountains. Um, and then on the top third, you've got a semicircle. And there you have the angels and the star. But at the center of that circle is Christ, the baby Christ. So that Christ is from heaven, that's the, the sphere. But also he becomes um, human. So he enters the square, which is the created world. To think of the four elements, the four the four corners of the compass, etc. That's mm. the material. So because we're flattening the icon, we can actually use this subliminal geometry to to express profound theological truths: the union of the divine, the creator, and the creation. Um, so this book I've just finished writing is to a show the development of the icon all the time, all these three often very fine adjustments are being made to the icon to respond to theological issues of the day. Um, and then all the time there's this relationship between the theology and the hymns, which are really profound theology. There's no sentiment there. It's all profound theology yeah. and paradox all the time, paradox. And the image, so word and image are, are dancing together and adjusting and changing. And it's so profound. And I think when people say, oh, African art is so crude, I think you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I agree. And I think, I think it's one reason why people are bending back now in the modern world toward things old. Or if you don't like the word old, if you're out there listening, it, it, it might be toward things unseen. There's this whole postmodern move toward all these variations on spiritual, right? Like we just saw, saw it in a, a school where I used to work wellness wellness is a word that's being used in all these institutions now i feel like do they, that's a spiritual maneuver right on some level and so maybe that bend back is something that that we can celebrate because i do know one thing i love coming home aiden after being you know sort of immersed in these foreign cultures i love coming home but i also see i see that there's this, there's a hyper drive toward creating meaning all the time. It's like we have to constantly recreate meaning rather than simply just just obey and and listen to what already exists in terms of meaning. So, I think talking to you reminds me of how profound the tradition is in which you paint, and how deep it is. And I'm sure you you must. You give thanks to be a part of it, yeah? Is it is it like that? Does it happen? That's awesome, yeah. I think I think it's one thing to know if you're in a culture that doesn't know where it should be heading, in other words, toward Christ, then you can highly develop culture, you can highly develop technology, but I don't know, it's like, like a, a massive boat just floating. But I think receiving the tradition from the, the apostles from Christ you know where you're heading to union, deification, theosis, we call it, you know, transfiguration, whatever you call it. Everything has its meaning. The asceticism, the material world, love, people, everything. Yeah. It's all that single thing of, of, of being united with God. Um, and I'm just so happy that I'm in a tradition where it's the, everything comes together. I'm working with matter. I just love working with matter. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I'm making it up more articulate in the praise of God. And, yeah. and it opens up doors. I can give talks at the British Museum, you know, a secular institution. Um, they asked me to talk about icons. And I got an invitation to, to speak at a New Zealand uh, public gallery, which is an icon exhibition. So it's 
wonderful opportunity to yeah. talk really naturally about Christ in a really natural way. I'm not preaching. I'm just describing beauty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really agree. Maybe we can end on that by saying something like, you know what's happened, Aiden, is I actually see in the secular world a desire to hear from people like you. I don't know that 25 years ago that would have I, I think we're much more comfortable in our, in our modern materialist world 25 years ago or even even around the time that everyone sort of harkens back for. I think there's someone mowing in my front lawn. Oh, no. Can you hear it? <laughs> but I think, I think one of the bait, one of the big pieces of bait out there is to, at least in America right now, as it happening in England, you can tell us, is to return to like the America of the 50s or something where everybody was on the same page or something. I don't know if that's the maneuver. I think the icon and all of the art that's, that, that you're talking about doesn't ask that. It, it doesn't ask that, right? It asks, there, it, it is a going further. It's a going, it's, it's a, it is going higher, not back, right? No, no, no. It's always going higher. I think it, it's, it's a long path and you need the, you need the wisdom of, of, of the saints of the past to help because one can want to go somewhere, but enthusiasm isn't enough. You need guidance so you don't take the wrong turns all the time. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the meaning of tradition, not just any tradition, but wise tradition. You're more likely to get there quickly because you're not making wrong decisions, taking wrong turnings. Yeah, that's so I helpful. Think, I think um, on this thing of spirituality, to, to, to finish, I think um, it is good in a way that there is a general move toward a greater spirituality, etc. But there's a danger there that we can't consider that as a consumer. You know, I think so often the spirituality, so called, is to eat happiness. You know, you need to be happy, so I'll give you a meditation. So it's basically it's another form of consumerism. Yeah. But that's not spirituality, truly. Right. So I think spirituality is a, a dangerous term, really. Everything is personal. I never, an iconographer doesn't paint ideas, always you're painting persons. So I think that's the important thing, that we're made for relationship with persons. Even when we talk about love of nature, it's not enough just to have a gooey feeling from being in nature. It's a revelation of the person of God. Wow. So everything is culminated in person, person to person. Um, but spirituality now is just sort of some sort of solipsistic happiness. And, and so it's just another form of slightly more refined consumerism. Mm. So I think we've got to make sure that um, we help direct this first to something other toward the person of, of God, if not the person of Christ, at least to love people, you know. People, that, right. If you don't believe in God, just go to, to you know, to live with people, you know, <laughs> go to yeah. Africa, wherever you're going, you know, <laughs> you know, go to your neighbor and just love your neighbor. You know, Christ yeah. is hidden in them. Even if yeah. you're an atheist, just love your neighbor, you know. And That's well said. You, you're going to get to heaven. <laughs> really <laughs> well said. <laughs> John, it's been a real privilege. It's been a real joy to meet you. I feel we're kindred spirits. As well as being I, brothers in Christ, we're, we're kindred spirits. So it'd be lovely to, to have more time with you one way or the other. I I think we will. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And I, um, I just blessed it to have been put in touch with you. And so if you ever come to the States, you're welcome here. If you're ever traveling in some wacky place like Georgian Republic, we've got folks there. Go and stay with them. Or if you want to Mozambique or or the Mayans in Guatemala, please, um, you have a place to stay, including here in South Carolina. So this was a blessing. Shenis Gagimarjos, thank you 
Mr. Aiden Hart, a hermit, among other things. Wow. Thank you for coming on. It was wonderful. Shenny's Gagimarjos, that means to you, the victory. That's often said at the KP table in Georgia. That's our pod for today. Thank you for coming along. Watar is produced by Andrew Schwark in Russia. And Daniel Paternos, currently in Georgia, leading people on a KP journey. That's when we at First Things take you to go see really cool First Things, like countries where you may never, ever get a chance to see what's happening. We show you if you come along. That's our nonprofit work. We help visionaries in their quest for what they think of as a better life. We listen and we help. We make momentum for their projects. Share Watar with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcasts. Your love for us allows us to serve others. Nakvamdis, hasta luego, kambufa, goodbye. That's my English accent. And peace out.